I agree. Great singing church. I love hearing your voices up here, even as I'm on the front, and I can tell you are worshiping, singing unto the Lord. Good, good stuff. I appreciate so much, even the very songs that are selected. I I hope that you see the intentionality of rich, theological, biblical songs. I appreciate Eddie in the interim as he's helping us with the music and, of course, our our whole music team. Thank you so much for what you're doing. First Timothy chapter 3. Last week we focused on godly womanhood. I'm thankful for the ladies at Lawndale, how you carry yourselves, how you live your lives out. What an example we, we love you. We appreciate you. I, I hope that maybe you've seen in the bulletin, ladies, a women's discipleship class that's going to take place this coming weekend on Friday night and Saturday morning. My wife Donna is going to be teaching that. If you've not yet signed up, I want to encourage you to do that. This week, we're going to move more to leadership. And I think these next couple of sermons could be the most important sermons I've ever preached in a church. I really believe that as we think of leadership, we see where God's heart is and how God moves in a church family and even what God expects out of all of us. So if you will, stand with me. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the first seven verses. The church's leadership. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You may be seated. Join with me as we pray this morning. Father, we, we've worshipped by singing songs unto your name. How great and glorious and majestic are you. What great things you have done for us. And now as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that we would continue worshiping just by trying to hear what you have to say to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to surrender and to submit and to love you more because we know you more And I pray that you'll give us a will to obey the things that you tell us. Change us, grow us, make us more into the men and women that you've created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The church's leadership. It's it's interesting how much attention and space that Paul gives to this topic. It's almost a whole chapter And this is not the only place. There are other letters and places where God has spoken specifically to the church about its leadership. And it's a good question. Who's driving the ship? Or another analogy that we've used a couple of weeks ago, who's driving the aircraft carrier? 
Who's overseeing things? Who's responsible? Who's making decisions? Why are we doing what we're doing, even as a church body? And I think this text has a lot to say to us about that. We've established the fact in 1 Timothy so far, the church serves the head. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the one that we're focused on. He's prominent. He's preeminent. He is the one that we bow before and worship and love and obey. It's his church. The church serves the head. Therefore, there's much equality in the church body. We all stand equal at the foot of the cross. What Jesus did for us on the cross is what he did for all of us in his family. He died for all of us. His his blood paid the price for the sins that we had committed. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But just as the church serves the head, the head arranges the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and also over in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul lays it out how that when all of us, we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And he gives us gifts. He calls us in different areas in the life and the ministry of the church. He arranges the parts of the body as they ought to be arranged so that we can be most effective, we can be fruitful, we can bring the most glory to God. And so even though there's equality, there's diversity. I'm thankful that God doesn't call us all to do the same thing. I'm thankful God doesn't give us all the same gifts to do the same thing. How are we most effective? Well, it's in the equality, but it's also in the diversity that God has arranged the parts of the body in His wisdom, in His sovereignty, and we're obedient to what He tells us to do. Now, in the church, what we find in God's Word is that there are primarily two offices, two offices in the church. There's the office of what we're going to find in verse 1 of of 1 Timothy 3, the office of overseer. And then when you move down to verse 8, in a couple of weeks, we'll see there's also the office of deacons. These two offices are mentioned many times throughout Scripture. Now, remember how the New Testament is gathered, how it's collected. We have the Gospels, which describe Jesus' incarnation, how he came to earth. It's his life of perfection. It's his sacrificial death. And it's his supernatural resurrection. And so four ways that God has made the coming of his son known, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of these in perfect harmony give us a wonderful picture of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now, the book of Acts is after Jesus ascends back into heaven after his resurrection. It's the beginning of the church. Now his followers are commanded to do what Jesus has modeled, what he has demonstrated, what he has trained them to do, what he has died and rose again for them to do. And so we began to see the church growing and moving out, and we began to see the foreshadowing of these offices, even in the book of Acts, as it's laid out. Now, the letters, which really is the next section that we find in the New Testament, Gospels, Acts, and then letters. Paul's letters in general letters explain to us what following Christ looks like and how the church carries that out even collectively, not just personally what it looks like, but even collectively as a church, what does that look like? And so it would make sense that we would find in these letters how the church should function and what offices ought to be a part of the life of the church. 
even if you hold your place here and turn back to Philippians chapter 1, you see a, a really good reference to these offices. As time went on through the book of Acts, you began to see these churches as they're started. Paul would go into an area, preach the gospel. A church would form or maybe another church planter would help form a church. And then it would begin to organize and these letters would be sent to help them in their organization. And already in Philippi, our letter to 1 Timothy was wrote it, written to a pastor who was serving in Ephesus. But here in Philippi, the church is already organized. Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, the church as a whole, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Two offices mentioned here. Now, we can look at other texts where we find these same two offices that are mentioned. Again, all through the letters. But particularly you see it in Philippians, particularly you see it here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So as we look at the church's leadership, we're going to look first at overseer. And the first thing I want you to see this morning is the expectation of having overseers in the church. Now if you, again, hold your place in 1 Timothy, look over in Titus chapter 1 as Titus was organizing the church, putting it in order, the church in Crete. Notice what Paul told him to do in Titus 1 verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, in the plural, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he gives a list of qualifications for what those elders are. Now you might be saying, well, Rodney, that word elder is different than the word that we used over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, overseer. I want you just to hold on to that thought for just a minute. Now, the expectation back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, is that Paul is assuming that people will be called out for this particular office. And he says in a statement, that was circulating through the churches. That's what, the saying is trustworthy. What, what you've been hearing, what's been circulating. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now think about that word aspires. There's a desire there. There's a calling there. There is something that God begins to do in a person's life that is a, an internal call. God stirs their hearts to begin to do something in this regard, especially as it relates to the office of overseer. One person put it like this, when God's calling someone to be an overseer, if you can do something else, do it. But the problem is, if God's calling you, you can't do anything else because God consumes you. And your love for Him as you're spending time with Him and as you're growing, that call becomes even more apparent. And so God is saying, if there's a man among you who aspires, he has that desire to be an overseer, it's a noble task. It's a good thing. It's a God-ordained thing. It's what God intended. And I think we as a church, we began to affirm that call. That internal call is affirmed externally. The church comes along and says, we see that. Now, when I began to think about asking my wife out for a date, I kept that information hidden for a while. I didn't want anybody to know. You know, I, I knew I was picked on, ribbed, you know, all of that stuff. So, so at first, I'm, I'm kind of biding my time thinking, okay, is this 
a person that I want to date. So I'm spending time. We're doing revivals in college. I'm preaching. She's singing. And there are opportunities for us to serve together. And I think I'm doing a pretty good job of hiding all of my feelings. And so one of those services, her grandmother came to that particular one. And after it was all over, her grandmother asked her, who, who is that young man who keeps following you around everywhere? <laughs> I think I'm hiding this pretty good. but And that's a little bit about this call, isn't it? Because we might wrestle with the call for a while. God, are you really calling me? Is this an office I'm supposed to fulfill? And usually when we begin to make it known, people are saying, you know, I thought God was calling you. I, I, how long was it going to take you to know that God was calling you to do that? And, and again, even personally in my own call to vocational ministry, particularly as an overseer, uh, I, I, once I made that public, there were people who came along and said, hey, we knew all along, Rodney, that God was calling you. So there's the internal thing that God is doing, but then there's that external call that the church affirms. The text tells us this internal call, and for me it's the test, the external call, where the church comes along. Now, I believe this is a part of the church's work, to, to affirm people's call. There are people that God's calling that maybe the church never comes alongside of and guides and leads and calls out alongside of the call of God internally. So it's part of our job to be raising up, to acknowledge, to affirm those that God's calling to be overseers, whether it's vocationally or whether it's voluntarily as far as overseers are concerned. One of the core values we have at Lawndale is leadership development. A part of that is who's God calling? Who's God moving? What kind of leaders are he, is he raising up? Because we're concerned about the next generation, not just ours. It's one thing to be concerned about our generation, and we should, but we've got to be much more concerned than just our generation. We've got to be concerned with the next generation. How's the work of God going to continue on once we're all gone? The internal call and the external call. Now, because this is a statement that was circulating around the time of the church, I'm using some of these common statements almost like a catechism, a response reading as we go along. So let's take this one as well, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to say the first part, the saying is trustworthy, and you as a congregation, I want you to follow up with, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Let's affirm this statement as a congregation. The saying is trustworthy. You guys just killed the first service. I mean, that was really good. But we're going to do it again, too. Let's do it again. The saying is trustworthy. Excellent. Good work. Now let's go back and let's review our first statement. Make sure we have it etched out. Remember this one was from 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Good work, class. God puts his people in all kinds of places. Some are in business, some are in maintenance, some are in government, military, medical. I mean, we can just go through a whole list. Now, just because somebody might be in one of those areas doesn't mean that they might not be an overseer. We're going to look at this office more intentionally in just a minute. 
But what it does mean is that we've got to acknowledge the call that God puts on people's lives to serve in leadership. Now, let's, let's think about this second idea, the explanation of what it means to be an overseer in the church. We, we see first the expectation. God means for there to be an office in the church and that he will regularly call people out to this office and that it's a noble task. Now, let's, let's go back and explain what this office is, this noble task, this high calling. Now, I, there are three words that describe this office. Now, in our text, it says the office of overseer. There are actually three words that we can look at that are used interchangeably through the Bible to help us better understand this office. Now, first, think with me about the responsibility. As we look at these three words, I think we began to define more of what it is. Our text is all about the qualifications. It's telling us what the kind of person should look like. Now, it's not because only the overseers are supposed to act like this. It's the whole church body. But only those who are maturing and growing into these areas are leaders because of what we know as the law of the lid. The law of the lid is that an organization will not outgrow its leadership. And so it's got to be that the leaders are held to that higher standard so that everybody else can grow up into that higher standard. And so the responsibility, I think, is understood by looking at the definitions of these different titles. Now, overseer means leader. Uh, and I'm going to give you a real, a real good definition, and you might want to write this one down. Overseer is one who oversees. They, they, they watch over things. They, uh, are in, they manage, they, they rule, they have authority, they lead out in vision and direction. It, it's in some ways like a husband who's the head of his household. He has responsibility. It doesn't mean he does all the work. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a helpmate, his wife, working alongside of him that he values and that he takes all of her input so that he's more ready to do the job that God's given him. There's equality there. But the overseer is actually the one who is leading out and who's responsible, who God holds responsible for the direction that the family is going at home, but also where the church is going together. Now, there's another word that is used throughout Scripture, and that is elder, as you see up on your screen. Hold your place here. Look back in Acts chapter 20. When Paul called the Ephesian elders together, notice these different words that he used to describe that office. Acts 20 and verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and we get this message, but jump down to verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You see, that same church that Timothy was pastoring, Ephesus, Paul calls this group of people, elders, together, and he acknowledges that he's also calling them overseers. The, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, that inward and outward call, to care, that's our third word, to pastor, to shepherd, 
to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And of course, he continues on. But I just want you to see those three words that are used together. Again, if you'll hold your place there in 1 Timothy, look over to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to take a closer look even next week at this office because I think it's so important that we look at this. And this is going to be our text. We're going to take a break from 1 Timothy for one week, but 1 Peter 5 verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd, so you have elders already, verse 1. Now, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. Same word as overseer. So same office alluded to in three different ways. And so the word elder speaks more to age in many contexts, but also one with wisdom, one who brings counsel to the table, not counsel as a group. We have seen a council of elders, but I'm talking about wisdom that they bring because of experience and growth and maturity in their walk with God. So you have an el- uh, someone who is an overseer slash elder who is also a pastor. And pastor would refer more to an equipper. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And it was he who gave some, and you have apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then he gives that office, pastor slash teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 12. And so pastors are equippers. They're disciple makers. And when you put these three titles together, you have a little better idea of what this office is to be about. They're leaders, counselors, equippers. They bring direction and wisdom and discipleship to the church. They lead out in these areas. Now, not only is there a responsibility that's given to the overseers, let me give you a few other things that biblically uh, define and describe this office. There's also the plurality of the overseers. We've seen that already as we've looked at some of these texts. But, but even look in chapter 4, 1 Timothy, verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders. You see, that's our other word, council, with the I-L at the end. This is a group of elders who laid their hands on Timothy. They were providing leadership. They were providing direction in the, in the body. Now, this is important because every church has leadership. Every church has what we would call church polity, how decisions are made, who's leading out. And there is a very clear form of leadership being given to us here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this office of overseer was meant to be a plurality, multiple people. And there's also equality among the overseers. Even as you think about this idea of a council, these guys were all seated at the table together. There's equality there. Normally we talk in terms of an elder body or an overseer group or a group of pastors, whichever title you want to give this group. There is a leader among equals, and oftentimes we give another title, a senior pastor, but we're all at the same table. We're all giving input. We're all looking at things together. There's an equality. And then there's also the accountability of the overseers. I I would say to you, most of the Christian leaders that you've seen fall bring shame to themselves and to their churches or people who had no accountability. 
You go back and you, you read about some of these guys and the interviews they have afterwards and, and they'll say there was nobody giving them any accountability. You see, God in his wisdom knew that none of us needed to be lone rangers. None of us needed to be calling all the shots. We need a plurality and it's a, a leader among equals or it is a group of equals that are holding each other accountable. And even over in 1 Timothy 5, 19, Paul is saying there is a way to, to have accountability here. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there is a, a way to handle this and there is a, a system of accountability. And a lot of that accountability should rest within a group like is being described here in 1 Timothy 3 of overseers. I would add one more word into that, and that's the masculinity of the overseers. I do believe that because God created gender, male and female, he made them equal, but he made them different. They have different roles. And back up in chapter 2, we saw in verse 12 of 1 Timothy that God does uh, uh, call for men to be in this office of leadership. This is what he said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And you can go back and listen to last week's sermon if you want to hear that expounded a little further. But even the very nature of this office, as you read in chapter 3, it's all spoken of in the masculine. It's what God intended that we as a church family would follow his divine design with gender and show the world this beautiful picture of two equal but different people coming together to do his work. The masculinity of the overseers. All right, one more key point here, and that's the examination for being an overseer in the church. Not everybody can be an overseer. Now, when I'm talking about overseer slash elder slash pastor, there is a sense in which this is a vocational work. There, there are many elders who are who are supported by the church. And we have a group of pastors who are supported by the church. But I don't think this office is limited to those who are supported by the church. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you look in chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. See, it suggests that there are also lay people who would serve in that role and be a part of this leadership body, this leadership team. Again, not everybody qualifies. Not everybody should serve in that role, and that's why there should be an examination. And anybody who would be added to our staff at church, they're going to receive a pretty rigorous, robust examination of their doctrine, they're going to receive that kind of examination of their character and their lifestyle and God's call on their lives. There's too much at stake that we would not guard his church in the way that God intended and even these standards that he's put in place. So what does it say about this examination? Verse 2, therefore, because this is such a high and a holy calling, because it is so strategic in the life of the church and to the work of God, therefore... An overseer must be above reproach. I would say everything else he's going to say falls under that category. Are there any red flags? Are there any problems in this man's life? Is there anything that is not above reproach? Obviously, we know he's not meaning perfect. None of us are perfect. But as a life, is what this man living out, does it measure up? Is there anything that would disqualify him? And now it's going to be explained. What are some of those things that would disqualify someone? I'm, I'm going to categorize four areas from this list 
of qualifications. And the first category is in his family. Is he blameless? Is he above reproach in his family? And that's the first thing that's lifted, listed after this general statement of above reproach. It says, the husband, verse 2, the husband of one wife. Now, as all these character qualities are, this is a character quality. This isn't necessarily a statement about his marital status. This is, is he a man who is fully devoted to his wife? Is he a one-woman man? Is he flirtatious? Are you, do you question what is motivated? Well, that's a red flag. Is he not loving his wife well? You know, are they not one together? That's a red flag. Uh, even with our interview process, we, we want a man and his wife to sit down with us. We, we want to see and to uh, hear and, and to ask because we know that needs to be a, a good relationship together. The husband of one wife. Now, you say, well, does that eliminate people who are single? Well, no. Uh, this is not a marital status. This is the kind of man he is. But if he's a single man then, does that mean he is a one-woman kind of man? That is, he protects everybody who's not his wife. He doesn't act flirtatious with any woman because he's not married at all. He acts like a one-woman man. He treats older women like moms and younger women like sisters. He is a one-woman kind of man. That's what Paul is after here. And then he says, if you move on down to verse 4, another family characteristic, he manages his own household well. In other words, he leads his family. We're, we're, we're looking at someone who can, who can lead, and if he can't lead his own church, his own house well, then why would you entrust him to the greater church, the larger church? And of course, that's, that's what he's saying in verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Doesn't mean his kids are going to be perfect. I, I'm a parent of four kids. They're all adults, they're all married now, and I'm the first to say kids do stupid things. Everybody who's ever had a child knows they're going to do stuff that's outside of the will of God. It's not whether they mess up, it's how do we respond? How do we parent them? Do we bring them back? Are we, are we training them? Are we more or less, are we making disciples at home? Even some of the men that I will disciple, uh, they will mess up at times, just like the one who may be doing the discipleship. We, we all mess up, but it's, it's our response, it's how we handle it. We're, we're making disciples here. And so a man is making disciples in his own household. And again, that's the transference. If he's not making disciples at home, it's not likely he'll be making disciples outside of his home because that's where it starts keeping his children submissive, making discipleship. In other words, the home is oftentimes, we could see it as the training ground. If someone's making disciples at home, now we, we can entrust them that they're going to do the same kind of work with the whole church body. They're, they're going to be serving faithfully in that way. It's a test. Ephesians 6 gives us this pattern that kids should live by. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Of course, he goes on and quotes uh, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, uh, that your days may be long on the earth. But, but notice after he says that, in verse 6, he gives a parental command, especially to fathers. Fathers, 
Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Are we being faithful at home? If so, then there's that likelihood you'll be faithful with God's family and God's household. So a man should be blameless. He should be above reproach in his family, but also in his integrity. In his integrity. There are a lot of things that are listed here that we could we could speak to. And the first one after the husband of one wife in verse 2 is sober-minded. That means temperate. Some of you may have other translations that may use some of these words. But temperate as opposed to rash. Clear-headed. He understands his relationships. He understands his culture. He understands what God says for us to do. And he's sober-minded. He, he has a clear head and understanding of where he is in life. When someone's sober-minded, they're more likely to be self-controlled. Next mark, next quality of integrity, self-controlled, sensible, prudent, as opposed to unstable. Able to make good choices in respect to self because they're clear-headed. Which leads us to respectable. Respectable is a word that really means uh, more about orderliness. One who has his priorities in line inwardly will begin to show that outwardly in the way that he lives his life. He'll be respectable because he has his priorities inwardly and outwardly in order. And then he'll be hospitable. That's another character quality. Is this man warm to guests? Specifically, even there's a hint of those who are strangers, those he doesn't even know. Is he hospitable? That is approachable, available for people to come to and they are willing to talk to. That's the kind of leader. Then not a drunkard. Now, if a man is known for drinking, he probably is not one we were going to put in leadership position. Um, Some would say, well, you know, it doesn't say he can't drink at all. And you're right. It doesn't say that literally in the text. I I advocate that, though. Uh, It's my opinion we do much better when we leave alcohol and other mind-altering and mood-altering things aside instead of becoming addicted to them. Now, I admit I have a strong bias. Uh, There's alcoholism in my family. And I can tell you some stories. I'll spare you the stories. But it's made my heart very much teach the, my own children and the men that I disciple, it's better just to leave the stuff alone because it can grab hold and take your life and help you end up in spots that you would have never imagined you would be in. But it says not a drunkard. Finally, uh, it keeps on going, not finally. We're a long way from finally here. <laughs> Don't say he said finally and then he kept going. I'm, I'm going to retract that statement. Not violent, but gentle. One translation says, and I like this word, not pugnacious. In other words, not a bully. But someone who's forbearing, even in the middle of when you feel like that life's not going your way, even when you feel like this isn't fair, this person is not violent but gentle. Not quarrelsome, uncontentious, easy to get along with. Otherwise, we in the church, we become a church that's not united. We're, we're uh, already fighting among leadership, but this person's not quarrelsome. It's already hard to maintain unity, 
And even more so when you have people who are quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Someone who's generous and not greedy. Oftentimes we'll say these people at least should be tithers. They, they shouldn't be hoarders. They should be givers. They should be generous. These are the kind of people that God stirs and calls to be elders, overseers, pastors in the church. There is one more area, though, as we take this group of character qualities He should also be above reproach in his maturity. Able to teach, verse 2 tells us. It's interesting because in in this list of character qualities, uh, it's very similar to the character qualities of the deacons in the below passage, but this one thing especially stands out because it's not in the deacon qualifications, but able to teach. Here's someone who's grown in his faith, who has a competence in handling the scriptures, understands uh, the Bible, how it's put together, understands the context of each book of the Bible, and then is able to teach others because of their knowledge and their competence and their skill, not only in understanding, but then even in communicating that word to other people. They're able to teach. And then... Down in verse 6, not a recent convert. He must not be a recent convert. Someone who is recently saved. Now, I I know sometimes people can be converts and never grow a whole lot. And so we're guarding against that kind of immaturity. But especially, sometimes someone becomes a follower of Christ. They get saved. They're born again. And they're so excited about it, we want to throw them in the leadership immediately. And the text is saying they they may seem like they're sold out and surrendered, and we hope they are, but let's give it some time and see if it's really genuine and authentic in their lives. We want to see significant growth over time, a great love growing for God and a great love growing for His Word. And then also in His community. We, We see the examination takes place in His family life, his integrity, his personal life, in his maturity, in his growth, in his relationship with God, but then also in his community. Look in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The community at large, what, what, do, what does the community think about this person? Is this a person who pays his bills? Or would the community say, you know, he's a leader down at the church, but he hadn't paid me for what I did for him. Does he treat people with respect? You know, the last thing we want to do is see an overseer uh, out in his neighborhood berating people and screaming at kids who are walking in his yard and, you know, this ogre that comes out. What does the community think? Is he kind and good to all? Even in places of business, when the clerk is taking his or her time and there are 10 people in line and you're in a hurry. Those are, is this person well spoken of in the, by outsiders, people who aren't in the family of God yet because God wants them to come into his family and if the leaders aren't acting family-like, Christ-like, how do you expect the world to ever want what we have? What I would say to you this morning, a couple of conclusions God designed the church to be led by a group of qualified men who follow Christ and shepherd his people. Now, let me say that again. God designed the church. This isn't my own idea. I hope you see this as a larger biblical theology, but in particular here in this text. God designed the church to be led by a group of qualified men who follow Christ 
and shepherd his people who are growing in their relationship with God and who are taking care of others who are also growing in their relationship with God. Now, what about what does that mean at Lawndale? It means that we do have a group of men who are who are pastors, who are overseers, who who are elders within the church and and we call them pastors. They they fall in this category, but maybe what that means is that we're bringing on even others who aren't necessarily uh, doing the preaching and the teaching to be a part of that group who will help lead out from a vocational standpoint, but also in a voluntary standpoint. And I, I think that's part of what, again, verse 17 is saying, that there are some distinctions in this leadership group. Let the elders rule, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there are some who are supported by the church and some who aren't, but they form this leadership team, this elder body, so that we can carry out the work that God has given us. I would also say God prepared the church for the attacks of the enemy. One of the ways he's prepared the church is that he's given us his word that we might know truth and error. But he's also put elders in place. And look with me in verse 6. Notice, he said, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, the church has a responsibility to follow Christ and to make sure that we don't let the flesh get in the way because that's what a, a recent convert would do, would let pride come up and then follow the pattern of the devil to put himself above even God. doesn't matter what God said. doesn't matter, I'm going to do what I want to do or I'm more important or somehow see himself in that kind of role. You see, God's put some parameters in place. He's prepared the church for the attack of the enemy because the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he's going to come after the church. And, of course, the same kind of references in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Not only can we fall in the pattern of the devil, our pride can arise, but we can also fall into the trap of the devil. And one of those traps that the devil sets is he tries to discredit the church. You've, you've had people say to you before, I would, I would go to church if it wasn't for the people who go to church, right? And that becomes a stumbling that, that whatever measure of truth is there, we know that none of us who attend church are perfect. And we, we do give reason at times but the devil would love to take that kind of stuff and keep people from coming to know Christ. He'll use it as a deceiver. He'll use it to discredit the church. And oftentimes we give the fodder for that. And as leaders, God's calling us out to say, guys, don't, don't be a stumbling block to the world. And don't put people in leadership where uh, the world already sees people of bad character and bad integrity, and then you're going to put people in leadership? What is that going to look like? Because now you're hindering the church and you've fallen into the trap and the devil's going to use that all day long to trip people up. What I would say to you in closing this morning, and I, I am sincere about closing this morning, this time, is 
If you're here today and you've not become a follower of Christ, the devil would love to deceive you and give you all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't follow Christ. Some of those may be that you have seen failures in church leaders. Some of that may be maybe somebody has hurt you, even in the body of Christ. Don't let what somebody has or hasn't done to you and in front of you keep you from following Christ. He is the perfect Savior. He is the one that we look at. And if you've been contemplating following Christ, but you've been held back because of issues or problems you've seen in other people, today I, I, I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you, lay that down. Look to Christ today. He's a perfect, wonderful Savior who will never let you down. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lay your eyes on Him. Behold the Savior. And let what He's done on the cross and the resurrection save you. Maybe you've been here for a while and, and you've been hesitant to even, even join in in what God's doing at Lawndale because you've been unsure. You know, you've been checking things out and have a new pastor and all this kind of stuff. Don't let the devil keep you from moving forward to do all that God's called you to do in a church family like we have here at Lawndale. And I'm calling especially our leaders out today, whether, whether it's an official capacity with the title of pastor or whether some other leadership role that God's given you, God has a high standard for us. None of us have arrived. Let's keep growing in Christ-likeness and into the standard that he set before us. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. You set a high standard for us that none of us can live up to. But we know because of Christ, you've changed our hearts. And I pray that as you've changed our hearts, that you would help us keep growing in Christ's likeness. Help us to become more and more the people that you created us to be. And I pray that even as we examine our own lives today and see areas where we're coming short, that you would grow us into that. Father, if there are people that you're calling uh, to be leaders in the church, I pray that they would hear that call and surrender. I, I pray that if there are people here who don't know you, that are lost, that if they died tonight, they'd spend eternity in hell. I pray they would hear your call today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't know Christ today, We'll have pastors who are available after the service. I'll be in Guest Central. I, I would love to. Nothing would make my heart more glad than to help you make sure you know Christ today. Would you make sure before you leave our grounds today? Let's stand and sing together.